Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. All right, all right, all right, all right. Well, well, I think you should lead us into this episode. Um, I, I think this is everything. Everything we're about to talk about is I'm not going to say your fault, but I will say your sole responsibility. <laughs> uh, it's to my credit is what it is. <laughs> it's go. to my credit. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome. It's your HV for the week. Uh, my name is John. I am joined, as always, by my friend and yours, co-ghost co-driver of the spooky discourse train that travels underground all Ash, aboard how are you doing um i'm 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 doing really good i've, I've come down with a case of the plague and a, a flintstones vitamin deficiency mm-hmm. um and and a case of being a mole person so you know i've been i've been better to be honest but i, that's I, I just think called, i'm doing all right i believe that's just called living in london um <laughs> That's that's what that is. Thank God the NHS is in good shape and and I can just pop on over to my local clinic for some free health care for all of the issues and more that I just discussed. Whop, whop, whop. I'm so Trump. happy that uh, oh we are going to have so much fun talking about like British American politics in a bit. I'm so happy the NHS isn't being sold piece by piece to American companies. Whop, whop. <laughs> now, now, now. <laughs> So happy that the that socialized medicine is uh, not slowly being taken away from us. Now to take a big sip of coffee and look at the state of Britain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the camera just pans out the window and there's just like an NHS hospital in flames. Uh, yes, friends, we are talking about the very normal island, Britain, today. I'm so sorry. It is. It's a British episode. Um that's okay, listeners. This is a movie starring an American. Things are going to be fine. We've got the situation <laughs> under control. We're implementing some credit-based economic changes to this wayward island kingdom. Things are going to be okay. Uh, before we get into that, though, um, there is a little bit of uh, horror news. Horror news, so we should, yeah. Should we have? I feel like we we should have like a jingle. <laughs> you know, like 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 a like um you know uh, an organ fugue just play like oh we, we, need, we need like one of those like dun, 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 news stings but but like like to the tune of like fugue and d minor yeah exactly <laughs> um yes in in uh in news this week uh the news broke that william friedkin uh american film director and uh director of the exorcist has passed away um uh, and this is this is kind of a complicated this is kind of a complicated thing that I think we should try and unpick. Personally, I, I feel quite sort of conflicted about this. Freakin in making The Exorcist probably changed the course of my life, um, mm-hmm. I, because that's what encounters with cinema can do to do to you. Right? You can you can be utterly transformed by something and kind of set off on a new course. Um, but I think it's important that we not fall into the kind of trap of hagiography. Yes, I, I, I think you're completely correct. I think it is very important to reflect on uh, what I would go as far as to say is an inherent communist communistic nature of filmmaking. Uh, that this is not just even in even in New Hollywood cinema, which Friedkin it was one of the great forces behind, right? Where the director was the god of the set, and everything yeah. began and ended with them. 
yeah. even even then it's still the actors it's still the special effects artists it's still the the writers right it is it has never just been these kind of like we're we're doing hagiography we're doing great man history of cinema when we lift up these figures to the detriment of everyone around them and i think things get especially complicated when we're talking about friedkin who uh, the exorcist is an amazing movie uh it's worth its weight in permanently damaged children's spines yeah which which is something that we have to grapple with i've seen so many posts that are just glowing celebrations of friedkin and it's it's like no we need to you know like we're not doing his memory a favor by forgetting all the horrible lifelong disabling things he did to a child actor well let's let's kind of not dance around it then because i feel like people may not know especially people have only seen those things online so what exactly are we talking about here uh, young Linda Blair. Um, mm-hmm. When Linda Blair was literally just a child starring in The Exorcist, uh, Friedkin put her through hell for that movie. Uh, she suffered greatly, and in one of the uh, bed-shaking special effects sequences, uh, uh, her her spine was broken by by the bed-shaking yeah. apparatus, which caused permanent lifelong damage to Linda Blair's sp- spine. Yeah. Uh, and there are multiple other stories, particularly from this, uh, the production of The Exorcist, that shows that Freakin' was um, abusive, uh, dangerous to work for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't ignore that despite the kind of uh, huge seismic impact and kind of uh, result of The Exorcist as a movie, right? You, one oh, ab- does not absolutely. morally excuse or absolve the other. Yeah, no, no, you're you're completely correct. And the great danger with this is like John Landis is going to kick the bucket, you know, in in the coming years as all humans must. And and there is going to be the same glowing hagiography of John Landis and he murdered children with a helicopter. Yeah. On on the set of the Twilight Zone movie. Um and and look that incident up if you don't know about it because it will completely change your view on Landis and several other directors. Spielberg, to his credit, uh, cut ties with Landis, and and Spielberg said that that moment was the death of New Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, yes, Exorcist, uh, incredible movie. Um, honestly, one of the films which is probably most responsible for me being the person that I am. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, cruising, you know, some like so many so many great pieces of work, but like oh, amazing, look- amazing movies. Like let's let's kind of not allow ourselves to to fall into that trap of like retroactive. It's kind of a it's kind of an an apology for auteur theory, right? Where you go, yeah, oh, it's okay because of who they are. And and the the, the, whole, the whole point of what we're saying here is is you can you can transcend trite moralism. We mm-hmm. don't we don't need to to hashtag cancel the now departed William Friedkin for for his many wrongdoings in life. Nor do we need to absolve his ghost by way of a celebration of these wonderful art pieces he was strongly involved in the creation of we 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 can instead have have a bit of a materialistic retrospective here and pry apart and pick apart these things and it also i mean like this this inevitably turns us to the current sag after strike yeah you know stronger actors unions would prevent these incidents from happening on set even with you know, uh, uh, directorial giants like the new Hollywood directors were. 
And also, uh, in a in a controversial perhaps argument, I would say that stronger actors' unions mean that you're more likely to get great works of art like The Exorcist. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. These 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 films are grown for the for grown from the ground up. We I, I at see the WGA SAG AFTRA like these these are the people who make the movies that we enjoy. Yeah, absolutely, incontrovertibly true. So yes. Uh, watch The Exorcist. Please listen to the episode that we did on The Exorcist. It's one of my personal favorites. It's good. Um, uh, and you know, if you if you like kind of visceral, shocking cinema, so many of Freakin's films are going to be your thing. I mm-hmm. I, I do think we're going to have to do an episode on sorcery one of these days. Oh, I would love that. Um, and maybe that's a chance for us to you know get back into Freakin's work and talk about it in a kind of more materialist sense. But yeah, um, rest in peace to a giant uh, of of horror media. Um, but let's not excuse the kind of violence that's done in the pursuit of art because one is not worth the other. And and are we not horror movie fans? Do do we all not have at least one T-shirt that has like a slasher killer on it? We are capable. <laughs> Of grappling with the horrific over here. This should be our wheelhouse, should yes. it not? Absolutely. Um, but with Ugh. that, with that, with that we... said, all aboard, choo 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 choo. <laughs> we are bo- uh, choochin'. We are, we are. Uh, this is a discourse train on the uh, HV line calling out the formalist zone. <laughs> The oh my god i think i think uh in all of our discussion of of uh mr william friedkin uh you know this this is actually i think this is really appropriate that deft turn you just made there because by 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 skipping the pricey we we have allowed the the listener to emulate the experience of riding on any british rail system where you'll <laughs> randomly skip a stop and and you'll find out days later that there was a pamphlet stuck to a grimy brick wall that explained why you would have missed that stop uh let's not skip the pricey what are we doing you can just fix this in editing you can just fix this in editing it's fine uh oh, ash, this is great ash, this is great what, what, what are we what are we talking about today <laughs> Oh, uh, we were we were talking about the politics of British Rail. <laughs> A startling discovery is made. One of the most challenging aspects of horror and the Gothic is the frequent absence of an easy villain. Slashers, monsters, literal demons often embody tensions and complexities that draw in our sympathies alongside our revulsions. It is likely impossible to create any gothic or horror antagonist that does not draw in at least some potential for empathy. To be a creature whose sole purpose is to radiate suffering necessarily means that the creature in question must also suffer. Monsters live in the periphery. Our fear of them is drawn in by the same orbit of all social oppression. The man, so riddled with disease, madness, and precarity, is fearsome for the same reasons that the NHS is in a state of increasingly rapid decay, and rental prices have skyrocketed in the UK and beyond. The man strikes out in loneliness and desperation, driving fear into our hearts by seeing how close to his fear we truly are. This, in turn, creates a complicated problem for anyone keyed in to even the most basic levels of liberatory politics. Total liberation includes Frankenstein. I could ramble on, and listeners, you know I can. But I feel that the heart of today's movie would be diminished by building a wall of words between ourselves and the event of this encounter. 
Mind the Doors as we discuss Deathline. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, All right, so, so sorry, everyone. We had to detour our train to go back a stop because there was a construction error. And and now you all have been stuck on this tube line for three and a half hours. <laughs> yeah, there were leaves on the line. Uh, the, the wrong kind of leaves. The wrong uh, kind of leaves. <laughs> and you all had to just put up with it. Should we should, should we make this episode a piece of theory fiction by like including like an unbroken three hour clip of people like sounding frustrated on a delayed train? And of course, because they'd mostly be British people, so it'd just be sort of like sighing. Because <laughs> British people don't like there's there is a reputation that they're very like litigious and quick to complain, demanding, and that's kind of true, but it's all done in a much more passive aggressive fashion. So it'd be lots of sighing. Lots of aggrieved hutting, but no actual words. <laughs> Ooh, I love, I loved agreed tutting. So what's the, okay, so before we get into the formalism zone, off the top of your head, what is the longest you've ever been trapped on any of England's mighty rail delays? Ooh, I, I feel like this is a slightly odd question because like economies of scale are so different in the UK. So like, for example, in the UK, Three hours is a long drive. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's that's a long. That's, that's, you're going quite a long way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in about five hours, probably closer to six or seven, you can get pretty much from one end of the country to the other. Um. So, uh, but if there's anything that we love to do, it's that we love to complain. So for for American friends, for Australian listeners, for anyone who lives uh, in a place where you know, you you drive three hours for a really for really good takeout. Um, I can only apologize in advance. <laughs> um, so, uh, probably yeah, probably like five or six hours. Is no, pretty. Was, yeah, yeah. I was I was gonna say I got I got stuck between Bradford and Leeds for five hours once. That was annoying. Mm-hmm. Yep. But then, comparatively speaking, my longest American train delay was mm, a little over fifty hours. I was about to say so, three days. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Oh, we yeah, have so, fun. So, so time is like a different thing here, right? Time, <laughs> time, and like I, I feel like we don't necessarily appreciate the extent to which your conceptions of like what a journey is are fundamentally bound up with your kind of like uh, these sort of culturally constructed notions of like distance and inconvenience, you know. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, like, it's important to, like, <sighs> not get too lost in, in the kind of politics of scale here. You know, a, a, a five-hour delay can be materially devastating depending on what is being delayed for a given individual. For me, it was an annoying inconvenience that kind of bummed a night out. Yeah, But exactly. if I had been delayed on my way to work or on my way to a medical appointment or something much more serious. Yeah. It's all contextual. Um, and this is this is why we are talking about a horror movie about the London Underground Railway System. <laughs> oh, so this this I, is this is pitting my absolute love of all things train against my relative dislike to messy script writing. <laughs> uh, this is weirdly this is the most leftist episode we could possibly do because it's about how terrible British politics are and how great public transportation is. <laughs> Oh my god, yes. So I guess I guess the first thing I want to say is that like 
it, listeners, if you haven't seen Deathline, I I think that the plot of the movie is a bit of a mess. Um, I don't I don't know how my illustrious co-ghost feels uh, about the 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 kind of writing that went behind this movie. Uh, writing is a strong word. <laughs> And I know, I know, I know that, that, that this then puts us into the dissenting camp because I know a lot of the uh, period criticism when this movie was released, people were praising its writing. Yes, and all we can do with that is be like, the seventies were kind of a weird time. <laughs> yes, completely. So, so I think in the course of this movie, we have like, and this is this is this will kind of tie us into our next point to the horror vanguard casting couch, if you will. Um, but we've got Donald Pleasance in this. So this movie has Donald Pleasance and Christopher Lee. Right. Like that. What a one two punch. Like power. And I think both of them are criminally misused. Like Donald Donald Pleasance is annoying. It borders on being annoying in this movie, right? As as a kind of foppish investigator for, for some British police department in London. And he, it, it just feels like they're giving him extended stand-up comedy bits yeah, in, this, inside of the movie. This very much depends upon, like, your uh, kind of cultural tolerance for a very specific kind of British police procedural, I think. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like, the closest analogue and... Only the re- only the real Anglophiles is g- are going to get this. Is like oh god. So in the late eighties to nineties in the UK, there was a there was a, a police procedural called a touch of frost about a kind of working class police detective in the north of England, mm-hmm. and Pleasance is he's kind of quite a shabby figure. He wasn't very kind of genteel. Uh, and was often kind of looked down upon. And Pleasance is kind of doing like the London equivalent. Um, and it's, yeah, it, c- it can be a bit annoying. Um, but so so we've got Donald Pleasance as Inspector Calhoun. Um, we uh, And then we have an American, David Ladd, playing Alex Campbell, the American uh, student uh, going to college over there in London. Going to and, university. Uh, oh, univer- I'm so sorry. University. <laughs> university. I've, I've forgotten already. Um, and then we have uh, Sharon Gurney, kind of, uh, uh, I'll, I'll say a forgotten star of British horror cinema, mm-hmm. uh, playing Patricia Wilson, uh, Alex's girlfriend. I actually think and she's so we, really good. <laughs> my, my like appraisal of this movie is there, there are like two stories that are refusing to like engage with each other in meaningful ways. So you've got Alex and Patricia. Patricia winds up being eventually captured by our mole man in this movie. And Alex has to go save her. So it's this very classic, like, the, the police won't listen to him. He's got to take matters into his own hands. He's an American. A very classic kind of setup here. Yeah. And then, and then we have the, like, pol- police procedural, where, the, where this kind of, like, mid-level inspector is, is trying to solve the crime. But the, uh, the MI5 feds keep coming in to be like, like, this case is too big for you. You yeah. small town cops can't handle this. And those two stories are just kind of pulling against each other for the whole run of the film yeah and they don't kind of have to um yeah and there is some attempt to get them to gel but it just doesn't work and it's a shame because there's quite a lot of really interesting stuff happening in here Um, oh yeah christopher lee basically has a cameo and is great (laughs) yeah so so i guess the story behind that is is christopher lee 
worked to scale for this one. He he got actors minimum wage because he just wanted to act with Donald Pleasance. And then the way they shot it, he actually only shared one brief under a minute long scene with Donald Pleasance. Like so so the, the the whole the whole gimmick of getting Christopher Lee and Pleasance together for the same movie didn't even happen <laughs> in this film. Paradoxically, this movie needs more Christopher Lee and maybe less Donald Pleasance. Yes, I I completely agree. It, it it does ultimately foreshadow though both of them being involved in the original Halloween movie. Yes. And and that not having Christopher Lee but instead having a lot of Donald Pleasance, but Pleasance is so much better in that film, so. I don't think he's bad here. I don't I don't think he's bad. Oh no, no, he he's he's good. It's just the movie doesn't like no, like his character just does not really fit into the film. Almost no one does in a weird way. This film can't quite decide the kind of movie it wants to be. And I think this is, I think this is slightly a writing and directing issue. Um, the writing and directing almost, yeah, particularly uh, because there, there is a cohesive storyline here, um, mm-hmm. but it basically just tries to put our American student and Donald Pleasance in a, in a room a couple of times and go, yeah. oh, look, you see, plot. And that's, a, that's about it. Um, you know, it's from the director of Poltergeist 3. So... Icon, legend. L- legends only. Um, but there, there are some, there are some, there are some really interesting choices. I actually think some of the, I think some of the kind of moment to moment direction is really good. Oh, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think on the macro level, storylines just don't quite kind of mesh together. I, I was thinking while I was watching this, like I, I could have just watched a feature length version of Alex and Patricia trying to escape this subterranean tube station maze while they're being pursued by these kind of like the, the, these like like British lepers, if you will. Like, and it's just disorienting visuals and and just increasingly confusing cinematic experiences. I, I would have say, really appreciated that. I will say this film is like leagues better than oh, what's it called? Uh, is it called Creep? Maybe. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna have to. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, it is, it's called Creep from director Christopher Smith back in 2004, which follows follows a woman who's locked in the London underground overnight. uh, And there is a kind of hideously deformed slasher killer lurking about. Um, And it is, it is very, very much based on um, kind of takes a lot of, it takes a lot of, um, inspiration from from deadline but is so much more misogynistic um and it seems to genuinely hate women so don't watch creep if you are looking for a london underground uh horror movie watch this instead yeah and i think like i don't know we'll get in we'll get into this into the discussion zone in a bit later but i think like so this film winds up giving patricia a, a surprising amount of like cinematic respect and agency and mm-hmm. in, in, in a way that like we have to grade on the hammer horror, how we treat women curve. Um, because this is, this is a, a movie that is in the hammer horror orbit. And like those movies are notorious for how bad they, they treat women on screen. And this film, Patricia's agential. She's doing some clever things. She's living her life. 
uh, up until maybe the last like 10 minutes. And then this movie kind of like wakes up from its stupor and goes like, oh, I'm competing with Satanic Rites of Dracula back to the back to the tits and assault. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but even so, even so, this is less woman hating than 2004's Creep. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it's one that's stuck in my mind for a very long time because it's a film that I've actually taught. Um, and mm-hmm. it, there are there are a surprising number of films set in the London underground, at least in part, uh, but it's kind of not as many horror movies as you might think. Uh, and um, yeah, Creep's awful, but this is, yeah, on the curve of Hammer Horror, this this is okay. Could 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 be. I mean, like you know, like this is no Vampiros Lesbos or like you know any Jean Roland film. You know, so we've got that as like the far end. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I, I did, I did want to like as like a, my last formalism zone point. I did kind of want to touch on the cinematography here because some of the shots when they're in the London Underground are like genuinely beautiful and interesting, and like we're we're being very playful with lighting and darkness and depth and kind of the the geometric shapes of a poorly lit tube station and and all of that stuff i really loved that, that that's very playful it's very creative it gives it does give the sense of being lost it disoriented me the viewer from the kind of familiar shapes of a dark tube station yeah which was I, incredibly like, successful like i say i think on a on a moment to moment level the directorial choices the shot selection really strong Although there is there is one scene I need to mention specifically. It's at the end of the movie. Um, and Alex and Alex and Patricia have escaped. Um, the man who who is the kind of plague plague ridden mole person living in the tube station. Um, the, you know, like and the cops have gone to investigate and we see some of their investigation. And and the police are coming back from the lair of the man. And they're like maybe 50, 60 feet away down a corridor. And we start seeing their flashlights approaching and they're talking. And, and as I was, I was watching, I was like, please let this be an unbroken shot of them walking towards us. Do not let it cut. Let it do the whole fucking thing. Just make this 30 minutes of them walking towards us. And it was. It was just 30 minutes of dudes walking down a corridor for no reason. It was beautiful. <laughs> how, how would I, the viewer, have known that those cops made it down the corridor if I didn't if see them didn't do the entire thing? <laughs> I would have had to assume that there were, that there was a wizard, yeah, or maybe, you would have maybe done, a sci-fi you would, teleporter. You would have done the Cinemasins ding, and then how would ding. they have ever recovered? Yeah, <laughs> what, what what did Doctor Who come and TARDIS them the the intervening twenty five feet? Uh, <laughs> that's that's why that's what you come to us for. That's that's why we that's why we do what we do as film critics to to just sit quietly watching 1970s actors walking down a hallway (laughs) (laughs) and then report it back to you and and, and somehow be like either that does or does not support the thesis of communism (laughs) uh yeah yeah that's that's what any any final points you want to make in our formalism zone 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 no i think i think i'm ready to talk about more chill and relaxed topics like british fishing wars and becoming a knight Absolutely. So um, then everybody, please stand clear of the closing doors. Let everybody off the train before you embark, because the HV podcasting train is moving along to the next station. First calling, however, at the by now expected Patreon plug, where if you want a season pass on the HV Underground, then you can get that by going to horrorvanguard.com. You can support the show for just a few dollars every month. 
you get bonus episodes, you get early access, you get a host of other goodies as well. Um, it really does help us uh, keep doing what we do. If you if you like the show, uh, if you enjoy it, we are so glad you decided to listen. But if you can, please do think about supporting us through patreon.com slash horrorvanguard or horrorvanguard.com. I think that's been my favorite Patreon plug we've done because it's been train related. <laughs> that's all it takes. That's all it takes. If we can make it train related, that's um, then you're on board. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. We have to we have to pause. We have to pause the horror vanguard train. It appears that a night OBE has been lodged into the tracks. Uh, we have to call a repair crew to get them out. Oh, this always happens. Oh, it's England. Right. It's England. It's just lousy with OBEs. They're just everywhere. Okay, so so our inciting incident is our two um, our two young young uh, protagonists uh, when they're at they're at Russell Square. Uh, where is it? They're at Russell Square. Yeah, uh, I'm just having a look at the tube map. <laughs> I, I think I think to to be completely CinemaSins accurate here, there is discrepancy because they they use the name of one station but filmed at multiple locations. Uh, yeah, that's that's. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> uh, okay, so Russell Square is it's uh, it's actually in, in a pretty nice area of London. It's in it's in Bloomsbury, technically mm-hmm. Cam- Camden, kind of a cool, very studenty part of the town. You're really um, hip. You know, you get your plague rats, you get your demons living beneath the street. It's really where you, it's happening. You also get senior figures in the Ministry of Defense who spend their time at uh, kind of sex clubs or strip clubs and then try and like <laughs> pick up women on the tube home. Because we've got to talk decision. about that. We've got to talk about that opening decision that they made. Uh, yeah, yeah, we so, need some... so... Oh, go, go on, go on, go, go on. Go. No, 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 go on. I was, I was going to say, so the opening credits of this movie are entirely in, in out of focus. So you, we, we don't we don't know what's happening, but it, it sounds like you're absolutely wasted in a strip club. And by the time things become in focus, we realize that this guy is absolutely wasted in a strip club. Yes. Um, and he is sir, someone of somebody um, OBE. That's that's something that's very important for us to know. Uh, well, so, he, so for our for our listeners who might not know what an OBE is, because you, we, and especially on a lot of horror actors, Donald Pleasance himself is actually an OBE. So, so could you let our listeners know what what in the British is that? Okay, it is. Oh, good lord! It is part of the. <laughs> it's part of the antiquated reactionary edifice that is the British Honours System. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a, uh, it is an order of chivalry, um, but it is awarded to notable individuals in, in the life of the nation who have made kind of contributions to arts and sciences, or they work with charities, or uh, in public service. It's quite strange that this guy has an OBE because he's in the because he's quite high up in the Ministry of Defense. We later learn, um, mm-hmm. and. These kinds of honors are not usually rewarded for work in the civil service. Yeah. So working for the government, you don't necessarily get inducted. It stands for the most excellent order of the British Empire. Um, oof. And it, oof. That's a, oof. That's a, that's an imperialist oof right there. <laughs> <laughs> and it is worth. I mean, like it, it is worth pointing out that there there is a deep irony in this movie because Donald Pleasance's character. 
spends the entire film complaining about how OBEs are out of touch and they don't understand the working man when Donald Pleasance himself was awarded and did accept an OBE. Yes. Yeah, yeah. When I think, um, and, and, you know, like there is a rich history of artists turning down the OBE on political reasons. There's a uh, Jamaican poet that turned it down for it being an obvious echo of empirical violence. And then John Oliver, of all people, turned his down. Yep. Uh, it's Benjamin Zephaniah who turned it down quite famously. Yes. Um, there are actually mm-hmm. grades um, to this. There are the kind of, I suppose you'd say, um, uh, ranks, ranks, as it were. So you, are, you can be a member which is an, uh, a member of the British Empire. That's an MBE. There is an officer. That's the OBE. There's commander, which is the CBE. There is the knight or dame commander, which is the KBE. And then there is the knight grand cross. Um, And yeah, they should be abolished. It should be abolished. The, the earth should be salted. There should be <laughs> no such thing as the British honors system. Uh, I mean, honestly, it is—it is like like what is the OBE if not the original uh, Twitter blue check? <laughs> oh, um, I kind of hate that. That's a perfect analogy. <laughs> so from from the outset, there are all of these kind of like class problems that are latent within the film's opening, right? So you have, um, I I think often we we have a kind of overly simplistic sociology of class um, mm-hmm. and that's that's maybe something that marxism or kind of theory as a whole feeds into where you go because it's an extrapolation out from the communist manifesto right there is there is there are the workers there are capitalists those are the two great camps that all uh, all working life is separated into but actually within class structures there are innumerable gradations and stratifications that have to be kind of understood sociologically um, and Britain is an excellent place for that to happen, mostly because the class system here is one, so t- closely tied up with the development of capitalism as we currently understand it. And two, because the class system is so historically entrenched over the past literally a thousand years. So, so, so the, already from the outset, there's like, uh, I think uh, Donald Pleasance's character expresses surprise that someone with an OBE would even be on the tube. You know, they don't travel on the tube. So mm-hmm. already you have all of this kind of like um, sociology of British society being laid out for you. Yeah. And I, and I mean, like Patricia expresses the same thing. Like like she, she says that, uh, uh, you know, J- James Manfred OBE, our high ranking military secret intel guy who's murdered, at the, who I, I should say is first kicked in the nuts by a woman. <laughs> That's the first thing that happens in this movie. I got to yeah, put that, put that thing, out here. The, the first thing that happens is you watch a member of the, of a, you know a literal knight of the realm get kicked in the dick, and it's <laughs> it's just great. It's just great. <laughs> oh my god! See, there there are things about this movie that I'm like, that's 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 perfect. That's that's so good. That's so good. And the politics are so rich here. This is this is an American UK co-production and the first thing that's happening is is a one of the literal queen's knights just gets doinked in the nards if you will perfect but patricia expresses the same thing kind of shock that a man of that stature would be on public transit and not have a driver to take him where he needs to go yeah uh as is as is our inspector and i guess i guess this brings up um, this brings up the police. We should probably talk about them in the context of this film and in the context of those kind of class 
discourses that are already in play. Yeah, because I, th- I think like there's uh, there is a compelling tension that we need to unravel here that that is part of all police dramas, or, or I should say, is a recurring theme in many police dramas, whether we're in the UK or the United States, and that's the kind of the the temptation to view the police as working class, which we often see played out as the like quote unquote working class beat cop, which is played here by Donald Pleasance. Uh, and then there's the kind of like imposing, uh, like coded as being higher class fed, which in this movie is played by three seconds of Christopher Lee. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think there is, it's worth talking about the relationship. This is, this is kind of a, a move of ideology, right? To present, to present, um, you know, oh, the police, they're just like you. They're just trying to do their job. Look, Donald Pleasance uh, goes out to to the local pub and stays too late and gets gets hammered with his uh, sergeant. You know, it's so relatable, and it's like uh, we we know that the a huge number of cops do not live uh, in the communities they police. They see them as kind of like hostile territory. I mean, this is especially uh, this is especially kind of weird watching this in the aftermath of all of the news and scandals that have broken out about the London Metropolitan Police, a almost cartoonishly evil force uh, of just racism, of violence towards women, violence towards the poor. Um, you know, it's it's very common for us to be talking about the police in the context of American politics, and that's incredibly useful and necessary to do mm-hmm. so, but. Literally thousands of people have died in British police custody. Yes, and no police over the, over the last over the last I think uh, decade and a half or so. It's it's thousands of people have died in in the custody of the British police. No British police officer has ever faced charges for any of it. You know, on the London Underground, like the, this this made me think of the the murder of uh, uh, John uh, Charles de Menezes um, in the aftermath of a terrorist mm-hmm. attack. He was in London. He was assumed to be a terrorist. Uh, armed police swarmed his location, and he was shot in a tube station. Mm-hmm. Um, he was ju- he was just on his on his morning commute. Commute. So it's like I think it's really important that that like we maintain this understanding of what the relationship is between the working class and the police. I think you're you're absolutely correct, and it is critical in the discussion of this movie and a lot of movies that feature British police to focalize the fact that there are differences in scale, there are differences in methodology, but the function of police remains the same. Uh, to borrow a phrase from the Empire, a pound is a pound the world around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... Um, Oh, go on, go on, go on. No, no, go on. What were you going to say? <laughs> I was just going to say, so we're done talking about the man. How about we talk about the man? Oh, uh, don't you just love the 70s? <laughs> Jeez, this movie, can give your monster a name, people. Uh, yes, should we talk about, should we talk about uh, our man beneath the ground? Yes, so so in this movie, although the movie the movie doesn't explain anything until the final five minutes and we get one muffled throwaway line explaining the man and it's such a shame um, because it, the explanation is so cool right <laughs> so, the explanation uh, is great so so in, in this movie the man is a 
uh, cannibal killer who lives in an abandoned tube station with the woman, uh, who's his girlfriend, I guess. Um, and like, uh, they also have the plague, like the, the plague TM, the one you get from rats at medieval times. Uh, and by rats, I mean, scabs support the medieval times union. Um, but like, so so and he also can't speak outside of reciting mind the doors which is what the conductor on the train says so so for some in the, the it's just what so what do we make of his total absence of an origin until we get that throwaway line right there at the end okay i have a hot take fire a lot of this is tied up with so many things, but specifically with the creation and development of the London underground system. So the London underground system was um, was excavated out in the beginning of the um, 1860s mm-hmm. uh, to to the point where, uh, like, this is this is the thing that kind of blows blows my mind is that like the original company that was financing it had trouble raising funds at first because of the Crimean War, like. <laughs> That's that's how old the underground system is. Um, a lot of it was done by hand. A lot of it was done by working people. And a lot of the construction required the demolition of working class communities in London. Or it required them to be forcibly bought, moved elsewhere. Done by private companies. So uh, our, our, the man is a kind of relic of the exploitation of the working class people who built the London Underground. But what was the London Underground built for? It was built to make the capital more uh, efficient in its movement of capital, Mm -hmm. right? The London Underground is is a living metaphor of the alienation of modern existence, right? This idea of like, oh, it's a kind of... um, it's a, it's it's for the movement of mostly working people. That's what it's for. People who are packed into trains and shot underground in the dark, right? If you've ever been to London and you get on the underground, the deepest line is the one called the Northern Line. Um, and if you're under there for a, for a significant amount of time, you come out kind of blinking into the light uh, or the kind of grey murk of London's incredibly polluted air. <laughs> and it's like, so it's not only it's a commentary on the kind of roots of the working class labor that built it. It's a commentary on the alienation of the working class people who still use it and still have to use it. I, th- I think that that is a phenomenal reading of the man in, in this movie, a character that is deeply s- sympathetic, deeply empathetic, that does not get... And I think it's very appropriate in a way that the movie does not give him any attention, any history, any community, besides his other, like wretched disused and diseased mole person like is is that just not the the perfect analogy for alienation and how class actually functions yeah i mean it isn't you know just as just as you know there's the oh what's he doing on the tube there's also oh you have to get on the tube you know Mm -hmm. you're one of them you're one of the you're one of the underground people yeah and again, again, this is the Morlockification of the working class. It is in. It is active. The process has been engaged. Yeah, and 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 of course, you can you can tie up with all of these things. You can tie this up into all of these things about yeah, not only the construction of the underground, how it's currently used, but the underground during World War Two, and it was um, you know, it was kind of like a public air raid shelter system. Yep. 
um, for entire communities who would have been um, just wiped out were it not there. Um, you could tie this into the history of kind of like UK mining. Um, so he's he's an incredibly sympathetic figure, incredibly, um, you know, full of pathos. And like his the scenes of him kind of wandering in the dark, just screaming are, you know, not only sort of chilling, but there's, sort of, there's a real melancholy to them, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like the, this is one of the most sympathetic horror villains I think we've had in a minute here on the show. And especially because with, with the man and indeed, indeed with the woman, like the whole inciting incident is the woman is pregnant. Assume we, we can assume with their child um, and she dies you know tra- tragically even and we see his like attempt to to you know i won't say bury her but inter her deeper into the abandoned tube station we see his grief and his mourning i i think it's it's also incredibly worth picking apart the fact that like so he has this big gaping plague wound on the side of his head um and everybody hits him in in the plague wound you know like that's his like video game boss weak spot yeah, yeah. Like, the, the 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 quick time event flashes up on screen. Yeah, yeah. You got to tap X really quick. Um, and like, I think that's really important too, because when he first assaults some people on screen, I was expecting, oh, I'm gonna be like, oh, he's gonna be like the super powered, like, you know, he's gonna be able to throw these guys overhead, despite the fact that he lives off of nothing but human blood and he's dying of the plague. Um, but no, he's like super weak and super frail and like. He kind of he kind of lacks a lot of the mythic power given to the slasher killer, and, and I think that it puts us immediately in conversation with like, okay, like if the NHS ever actually worked, not just worked today, but worked five decades ago, like this guy wouldn't be like this. You know, he would have had the care that he needed. You know, especially like like when we do learn in the end that there was like a cave in of the company building the tube station, and that's I guess how they theorize he got trapped down there. Yeah, they just left them to die. And there mm-hmm. are there are similar stories. Like a lot of people, a lot of working people died building the underground. Um yes. it was it was yes. incredibly dangerous. They were incredibly badly paid. They had very little by way of protection. Um and it's and, and it's mm-hmm. still working people who now are trapped cyclically underground for hours at a time on their commute. Why? So they can go to work and they can continue that cycle. Yep, and I think it's I think it's worth pointing out that the echo of colonialism is that, but is in there as well because a lot of the workers that died building the not not just the underground but the British railway system at large were victims of the empire. They were brought in from colonial spaces to do that labor, which it's is the same correct. same here in the states. I do I do find it interesting that there's one Irish man in 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 this movie uh, who is who is just auto killed by our our subterranean mole man who who he himself. A victim of the British Empire is further victimized by the ongoing kind of radiating cultural damage of that. Yes, exactly. Um, so that's that's a kind of really interesting insight into the, how this film treats those those discourses of kind of internal class contradictions to British society. But there is also there is an external contradiction that has to be negotiated here, here because we have the arrival of the american in london we have the the clash of the two great political powers and it's such an interesting choice that our american abroad is studying international relations uh, international economics uh-oh <laughs> 
Okay. Kind of like as an American, one of the last things you want to hear is someone who's not an American is that an American who specializes in international economics has shown up to help your country fix its problems. Um, what do you think of this? What do you think of the of the conversations that the, 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 um, it's Alex, isn't it? Yeah. Alex, Alex is our American. Uh, and um, and Donald Pleasance's character, the inspector, have. Oh, there is there is so much. So much. I, I, OK, let's just let's just let's just dive right into it. Um, so Alex is brought in under suspicion for the disappearance of I think it's James Manfred OBE. Um, because he he and his girlfriend Patricia first reported seeing him unconscious in the tube station after he'd been kicked in the nuts, rightfully. Um, <laughs> booted in the nuts so hard, he immediately passes out. He immediately passes out and then phases out of this plane of existence. <laughs> <laughs> and then a wandering cannibal is just like, oh, how convenient. Prepackaged. Um, but no, so he, he's having a conversation with the cop and the cop is like, like, oh, I bet you're late to another student protest rally. And and the 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 crack, the the crack between them is uh uh Donald Pleasance, the 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 investigator, asks him what he thinks of the common market, to which Alex replies, uh, a kind of a non-answer followed up by the fishing border should be set at ten miles, to which Pleasance later replies in the movie that it should be eight miles. So now, now let's discuss what this movie is really about, and that's the complicated history of British fishing policy. Yeah, so this is Brexit cinema, and I'm so sorry to bring this up. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, so at the beginning of the 1970s, um, there is the question of Britain's relationship to Europe, which has always been s- sort of standoffish at best. There is um, the EEC, or what's referred to as the common market, which is uh, this zone of economic integration between European states, um, which would later then kind of get folded into the European Union. Um, The common market was designed as a way of actually, one, helping Europe rebuild after huge, huge swathes of it were completely demolished during World War II and then Mm -hmm. refinanced through the Marshall Plan. Um, and basically putting them in debt to America for a very, very You're long time. You're welcome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, it's, it's fine. It's fine. You know, we helped. We helped destroy it, but also we mortgaged it back to the hilt. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you let your American economics majors into your country, people. <laughs> um. So Britain's Britain has a th- this gets very complicated very quickly but the big thing is that this brings up the common market for fishing. Uh and this has always been a a kind of hot point in British politics and the thing we have to talk about is the cod wars. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love see this is this is this entire time I thought COD stood for Call of Duty but no they're just games about the cod wars. Yeah, the the real the real cod <laughs> It's the hey, one hey, in the all scene. gamers are bastards. Have have both of us on to talk about COD colon COD Wars. Yeah. Uh, Agab, when are you going to talk about the COD Wars? And in this mission. This is a call out post. <laughs> Agab, <laughs> I demand an episode which covers the fraught relationship between the British Royal Navy and Icelandic fishermen. <laughs> Yeah, my, 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 my favorite COD mission is when you have to pilot a, a rickety Icelandic steam freighter 
against the full might of the British Navy to fight over over a, a one mile fishing territory boundary. So uh, basically, Iceland was starting to expand its fishing borders um, for a couple of reasons. One, ecological two, financial, needing to preserve stocks and wanting to capture um, enough so they could get access to the common market. British fishermen got very annoyed about this, accused the Icelandic of stealing their fish. Um, it's, how is how is Britain a real place? Um, and-, <laughs> and I think I think it, it's worth highlighting really quickly that like fishing as an industry has kind of never been responsible for more than roughly one percent of Brit- Britain's GDP. So yes. this isn't this isn't the cornerstone market holding England together. Um, but it's very much presented as being kind of like integral to mm-hmm. the national self-identity. Um, the Second Cod War uh, starts the f- uh, 1st of September 1972 and wraps up in November. Um, and the argument was um, uh, they, they, the Iceland were basically taking away the, quota, the catch quota for British fishermen and Britain wanted to preserve a kind of de facto recognition of... Um, they were protesting that this is just like, oh, they're just extending their borders willy-nilly. And like this is going to become a kind of precedent. Um, it's so funny. It's so funny that uh, Iceland expanded their borders. British fishermen and German fishermen kept fishing within their borders. And then there was a kind of confrontation. The UK actually lost. <laughs> um, so Iceland extended its... Uh, exclusive fishery zone 50 kilometers uh which covered gets you pretty close into into britain but like this this sets up so many kind of problems around like the british relationship to europe the inter- mm-hmm. you know uh things like catch quotas because there's a common market and so things have to be evenly distributed and so many of these kind of tensions and frustrations and antagonisms all fed directly into the brexit vote like, in a way, you can draw a straight line between this movie from 1972 and the UK leaving the European Union. Historical materialism does that to you, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is so shocking how accurate that is. Like, like, you can absolutely see the seeds of Brexit, the seeds of Boris Johnson's government planted in a 1972 movie about an American and his British girlfriend attempting to escape a plague-ridden cannibal killer. Um, and you would not expect that from 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 this film. Uh, but this is yeah, this is about this is a film about Brexit. Speaking speaking of Brexit, we need we need so we we talked about the NHS. We've talked about kind of the British economy. Two two major sacrifices on the altar of Brexit politics. Uh, let's let's talk about the third. Let's talk about what's going on with those trains. Uh, oh, yes. Um, again, economies of scale, right? Um, Britain, Britain, the 19th century saw a huge kind of train building activity in Britain. Um, again, for the movement of goods, capital and people. Um, by the 70s, lots of like local regional lines had been closed down. Things had... Um, oh, when were they... When were they privatized? I think they were still. I think British Rail still controlled most of the railways, but it was a, a massively underfunded, kind of falling to bits. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- as as someone who is as someone who is uh, uh, American and has spent plenty of time in Britain, what what do you think about the public transport? 
So this is this is another one of those weird paradoxes too, because while I was over there, everyone was like, everyone who obviously lived in England and was from there was like, oh, the trains are dying; they don't go anywhere; they're so unreliable. And I'm like, wow, these trains go everywhere; they're so reliable. Because <laughs> I'm used to the American public transit context, which is we don't have it. Good luck. You know, like maybe, maybe like, you know, like Chicago has great public transit, but Chicago's public transit is also like, you know, like the, the city government still to this day uses COVID as an excuse to underfund the public transit here and to try and gut it, which is ultimately a ploy to do what's happened to a lot of British rail. And that's you underfund something until it starts to collapse. And then you have the necessary pretext and talking points to privatize it. Yeah. Um, and so like to kind of put this in a, maybe a slightly longer historical context, between the 1860s to probably around 1900, Britain financed huge amounts of its infrastructure building, uh, which it would then later it, it kind of nationalise and, and sort of semi-socialise, financed that basically with the theft of the, 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 the British Empire kind of mandated. Extractive mm-hmm. colonial capitalism financed um, impressive infrastructural works and development of Britain. If you don't believe me, just go to any port city and look yep. at some of the incredible architecture that you'll see. And then ask yourself the question, I wonder how they paid for that. And the answer is, mm-hmm. uh, you probably won't like. If that's what happened then, the 70s and 80s are the point uh, in the, you know, like a century later, you basically see that being slowly dismantled and turned into a new kind of asset class. Uh, and that goes along hand in hand with things like the uh, combating the unions. Uh, shout out to the London uh, London Underground, which was always very strongly unionised. Used mm-hmm. to be um, the leader of the union used to be the legendary trade unionist Bob Crow, um, who, when asked by um, a journalist whether he thought his members would mind if he was a communist, he would say, "I think my members will be happy that a communist has made sure their pay keeps going up year on year." <laughs> uh, Bob Crow, who was extremely militant and was very willing to call strikes and basically kind of cripple the capital. Um, mm-hmm. And so the the underground is still um, very heavily unionized, but um, and so working on the underground actually does in a union position does actually uh, mean there is some access to relatively well paying work. It's hard. It's dangerous. It's a huge amount of responsibility. Um, but yeah, so the seventies and eighties, you basically saw the kind of dismantling of something that had been built a century before, um, and that explains a lot about what is currently going on with British infrastructure. Yes. Which is a lot. <laughs> and, and this movie is so engaged with it too. It's so aware of the political context it's emerging out of, even if the kind of beat to beat moments of the script are very messy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's a lot to, a lot to like about this film. Um there's one other thing that I think we should talk about, though. As let's, we kind let, of- let's close out with another geopolitical, uh, plague-ridden cannibal concept. Uh, <laughs> should, we, should we talk about Vietnam? I think we have to. I think we have to talk about Vietnam in the context of this movie. So this movie comes out in 72, right? The Vietnam War is on. Um, and our American, uh, in, and he doesn't stay this, state this directly, but an eagle-eyed viewer will spot an anti-Vietnam poster, anti-Vietnam war specifically poster in the background. It's an anti-draft poster um, that featured a skeletal Uncle Sam saying, we want you. Um, a riff on the iconic pro-war draft poster of Uncle Sam. 
Uh, so we can infer from that that our Alex, our American, is against the Vietnam War. Um, and who knows the, the, is the context around him and his character and, and how that plays out. But what I find to be really interesting is rather than kind of focalize his goodness as someone who correctly on moral and political levels is against the Vietnam War, uh, it allows us to shift our attention to the UK's complicity and, in fact, direct support of the American effort in Vietnam. And something that really gets overlooked a lot, I think, and especially left discussions of uh, like American colonial activity. You know, we often overlook the fact that like the, the, the UK is often our right hand man in a lot of these conflicts. Uh, yes, absolutely. The, the quote unquote special relationship, mm-hmm. which goes all the way back to the Second World War, if not further, um, and has basically been a way of uh, the kind of like, it's no coincidence that what really sort of runs through the UK is huge amounts of money. The city of the city of London, rather than London itself, yes. is yes. is a clearinghouse for American money, uh, sending it back and forth, uh, sending it out globally. You know, capital gets complete freedom of movement through the UK, even as people are increasingly policed placed behind militarized borders and, you know, left to drown in the Mediterranean. Or literal floating prisons while we're there. Yeah, jeez. Um, yeah, so, like, uh, it's this co-production uh, of a film also highlights the kind of co-production of mm-hmm. Anglo- Anglo-American imperialism. <laughs> <laughs> This is such a... I, I really like, like, you know, like, listeners are going to watch this movie and, like, it is... You really, really just just be ready to engage one level deeper than what this movie is giving you on the surface, because what this is giving you on the surface is too much Donald Pleasance and not enough the rest of the movie. Yeah, there's there's um there's so many. In, uh, this is why I'm like this is a good movie, uh, not because it's good, but because it's good. Uh, because oh yes, yeah, yeah. Because there's there is like on a moment to moment level, there's stuff here that doesn't work, but like discursively. Not only is this a kind of incredible moment of like cultural history and coming out of such a clearly defined tradition of filmmaking, that kind of hammer horror, slightly schlocky, uh, classically trained actors involved. Right. But there's so many kind of interesting um, ambiguities and contradictions that this film is kind of like picking at expertly. No, I, I I completely agree. This is this is this one's a wild ride if you're into like US UK relations and British geopolitics. Oh, like, and trains. <laughs> oh, and 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 trains and cannibals and like the long memory of British working class suffering. Like like I, I think it's really important that he's got the plague. You know, like like he he the, the, this this the kind of the the specter of what the man the cannibal represents in this movie is is something you know almost like this pre-industrial underclasses suffering that still lives to this very moment. Oh, what a what a what a great line to end it on! All right, well, well, everyone, we'll we'll uh, see you next week. Uh, the horror vanguard trains will be running on time, uh, as as we assume. Wait, our trains wouldn't. I was going to do a bit and say, like, our train union is about to win their strike, but our trains would be, we wouldn't have a union because our trains wouldn't have bosses. The trains would be owned and operated by the workers. And now I'm, <laughs> now I'm far too deep in, like, a, a, a communist politics of, of post-capital 
Anyway, uh, enjoy the horror movie. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.